Welcome to episode 73 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's August 8th, and in today's episode, it's just going to be the two of us thinking about and reflecting on the last year and a half of maybe we could say how we've seen COVID shape how we talk about and research infectious diseases, as actually this podcast name reveals. We thought it would be a good time to take a short break from our usual interviews, which we tend to do every so often, to kind of take stock of where we are before, I think, the new academic year begins. Yeah, I agree that this is probably a good time to do just that. And the last episode with only the two of us was way back, so in episode 52, I think that's like 20 or so weeks earlier, which was also our anniversary episode back in March, at the middle of what we thought then was a low point in COVID, at least for us, like this vaccine light at the end of the COVID tunnel. Many of us, that is to say academics and teachers, really hoped that last spring would be the final COVID semester and that the fall of this year of 2021 would be in person. But I think as time moves on and semesters are nearing their beginning, that appears to be increasingly problematic. And I think there's a case to be made that the fall will still be shaped by COVID in one way or another for a variety of reasons, but maybe we'll get to that in a bit. Now, either way, as I thought about this episode and this more reflective episode, I mean, it was quite clear that some of the points that we'll be discussing here have come up in previous episodes, either in the conversations we've had with guests or perhaps in our reflection segments. And even though there will probably be some repetition, I thought it still would be interesting to see how our thinking on some of these matters has evolved over time. At least on my side, I can definitely say that COVID has changed my position on some of the points that I think we're going to discuss. But before we move on to the discussion, how have you been doing this week, Merle? What's happening on your side in Annapolis? Yeah, so we got home from vacation seeing our in-laws, so it's always nice to be home. And now just with the kids, my wife actually had her first work trip where she stayed overnight. So it was the first time where it was just me and the two kids since actually February of 2020, which was strange. We used to do that actually every month before COVID, but the kids were generally great. So even though there's like this increase in cases now because of the Delta variant and so, this is the time when she started to go back to like her old workplace in person? No, this was a one-off thing, and I don't think it's going to be in person again for the foreseeable future. But aside from that, I myself have to travel next week to somewhere where COVID isn't really as under control for various reasons as it is here in Annapolis, although numbers in Maryland are getting bad again, too. So that's causing me some anxiety. So we went to second breakfast today, actually, which was unusual in terms of the day of the week. But all of us were wearing masks again at that point, although most people in line weren't. So I have to say it's become a strange feeling now that, you know, maybe it's because I read the news too much that I know things are getting worse. But certainly around us, it doesn't reflect that really at all. But I'll reflect back going to a new place and let you know next weekly what it's like. I'm looking forward to hear your reporting from... Uh... COVID land, let's say. <laughs> Not sure that that's necessarily what I would call it, but maybe from a different place, thinking differently. But how's your summer vacation, Lee? It looks like you're not at home now, and I don't think you're at the Eiffel Tower, which is behind you at the moment on a poster. Yes, so I am on my first day of a two-week, apparently it's called workation, so a work vacation. Have you ever done one of these, Merle? No, I haven't. Is this just where you go somewhere else and do new stuff in a different place? I mean, it's basically combining work and vacation. So it's you going to work in a place that is not the regular place where you work. So we just went to a different city and we'll spend about a week here. And then we'll go to a third city and spend a week there before going back to our home in Jerusalem. So I'll report on whether this was successful or not. I think it'll be interesting. Are things different at all vis-a-vis -vis COVID or is it just you in another apartment, hopefully with less noise and fewer trucks driving by than when we normally speak? Well, it's hard to say because 
my apartment back in Jerusalem is an upper middle class neighborhood. And the place where we're currently at is probably middle class, maybe lower middle class, I would say. So it's very different here so far. And again, I'll, I'll be able to say much more afterwards that the streets seem similar at this point, but it doesn't really mean much. But other than that, COVID continues to increase in size here in Israel. And I think the last I checked, we had about 3,000 cases per day, which is a significant increase. The university started re-implementing limits on working from campus again to reduce infections. So yes, COVID is definitely coming back and we'll probably see a lockdown in the near future. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, things are coming back here in various universities from what I've seen are reimposing measures, but I haven't seen any discussion at all of any type of lockdown measures that the US is going to do moving forward. Yeah, here it became popular for whatever reason. Yeah, I guess to each place their own in terms of the measures they want to implement. But turning to the discussion, Lee, the first thing I wanted to talk about is probably the biggest, the most meta, to use your phrase, the bleeding edge, if you want to use your other favorite phrase, which is, what do we think the influence of COVID has been on academia? Now, here, I think we should confine ourselves to the humanities and the social sciences, since the natural sciences, especially anything medical, is obviously going to be an entirely new and different situation. But my initial thoughts here, I guess we could group into two buckets. The first is I've seen and read a lot more work about disease, or there have been a lot more talks about disease or pandemics in them. And to put it simply, people who work on disease have been more popular during COVID, and other people are publishing more stuff about COVID. And I think we can discuss what that means a little later, Although, for my mind, I've seen some very funny citational practices, both of our work and other people's work, from some people at this point. Yeah, I mean, before we might move on into these unorthodox, let's say, citation practices, I mean, one question here would be whether the change that you're experiencing or the change that you're seeing is it because the field is changing or is it because you become more interested in diseases and more attuned to anything COVID related and disease and history related, partially because of our research work, partially because of this podcast? So what's your take on that? What I think is there's more people publishing on it as a whole, right? I mean, there's been a number of articles, both in our own specialties, but also just broadly publishing on these topics, certainly. But with very little critical reflection, right? I don't know why necessarily some of these articles are being written. We'll leave it at that. I mean, I think people feel they have to get into disease to an extent because that's what's happening. And so I think there needs to be more reflection on what the goals are of these articles. That's what I would say about these broader aggregate articles. But the second thing, which I think is actually the reason why you partially started this podcast, which is a way to learn about how other people think about research and write about disease across time and geography, right? So I think part of our hope of this podcast was that we might encourage people to come a bit more out of their particular silos to think differently. And I hope that for many of you listening, this has been a huge benefit. But in terms of what people so far have published, and this goes back to my first point, I think, I'm not sure how much this actually has happened, at least as of yet. Yeah, I think both of these are fair points and they work together. Maybe we can start the discussion with the second point first, because it's maybe a bit more concrete and then we can move on from there. So my sense is that the field is, so to speak, very diverse with many different approaches, many different questions. Many of the conversations we've had on the podcast though, have convinced me that we as a profession, as a discipline, are really still siloed in our different fields. And I'm, my position on this at the moment, at least, I mean, these things again, change over time, but at the moment I'm pessimistic. I don't see the incentive structure that will convince scholars, mostly historians here, to really broaden their scopes. And I'm thinking here that we historians tend to value this hyper-specialization in a specific time and place. And 
moving away from this hyper-specialization is rare, especially in an American context, as opposed to other places, so for example, Germany. Now, another issue is that many of the article publication venues focus on specific times and places. So if you're interested in, let's say, early modern Latin America, you would read the journal for early modern Latin America, and you might not be really incentivized to read scholarship outside your specific field. So in general, I would say that most of us do not read very widely. So that's part of the silo thing. Yeah, that's a good point. And this is actually why, for example, I personally prefer to read, say, very broad journals like the American Historical Review or past and present, these very broad chronological geographic journals, rather than actually some of my own field journals, right? Because if I read, say, Speculum, which is the Journal of Medieval Studies, you know, I kind of know what topics in the medieval field I'm interested in broadly construed. And people approach them in ways I'm fairly familiar with. But if I read an article about, you know, Latin America, to use your example, that field works in very different ways. And I find reading articles in these very different fields, both geographically and temporally, actually gives me new approaches, new theories, new ideas. And that's just for me personally, that's why I kind of like to read those journals. I always thought you were special, Moral, for reading all those articles. But no, I think that that's probably more exceptional, I would say, than the norm. At least that's my take kind of reading around, listening to talks and so on. That's my take. Now, to think about these things from a broader perspective, academia, or at least history departments and the historians who work in those departments is extremely decentralized. There's no like central place or institution that makes decisions for the discipline for all historians or so. Because of this, my take is that changes in what people work on, for example, can take a very long time. And I'm thinking here about decades. And personally, I also think that decades is too late and too slow. Maybe decades was okay for the mid 20th century, but today and like 2021, I would say that we historians are really in serious danger of fading into irrelevance, or maybe if you prefer a different metaphor, locking ourselves in the proverbial ivory tower. So I understand where you're coming from, but I guess the problem is, is you have this obvious tension, which is, I would argue that tenure track jobs and tenure is a good thing, broadly construed for the academy, but once people get jobs, they get locked in to those jobs for a long time. And you're actually arguing an administrator perspective, which is to say more flexibility in what people are teaching. But the problem with that is ultimately, it then leads to more precarious living job situations for more people, if there's a broad change in this. I mean, I'm not sure that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm, there's much to be said about administrations and tenure as an institution and so on. But I'm thinking here more specifically about the individuals, the individual historians, the individual decisions that they make about their careers, their research, their interests, their teaching as well. That's where I'm coming from. Okay. So I think what you're actually getting at, and there's problems with this model, right? Is, you know, for example, the German model forces you to do two very different things when you work on a doctoral thesis and then a habilitation, right? Those are two, you're told you have to do two very different things. And now there's problems with that model as we've talked to various people on this podcast about. But from the perspective of academia writ large in America, I think what you're saying is sometimes you wish that people's first, second, third, et cetera, et cetera, projects were on different topics, right? That you didn't just do cats in the 14th century, and then your next project was cats in the 15th century, right? That there was some incentive to bounce around on topics more. Yeah, I think versatility is not particularly valued in the American system. And I think the American system has a lot of positive things. I think the undergraduate and the American system is definitely better than the undergraduate in the Israeli system, for example. I mean, allowing American students to really take 
any classes they want or take general classes for one or two years at the beginning of their studies, I think provides them with a broader education than Israeli students who have to apply to specific majors and are much more specialized from the beginning. But on the higher end, right, so the more professionalized PhDs, doctoral students and, and postdoctoral students, and even early career researchers, I think the American system, at least in some sense, does incentivize people to just stay where they are and continue publish on, I mean, your cats in the 14th century. Yeah, that's a fair point. I don't know how you would change that because at some level, you do want people to work at their own pace and do their own thing because anything else, and you're just in this accelerating super neoliberal capitalistic model in which everyone is forced to do more and more work and turn out more and more things. And this is also a problem, right? Because everyone is forced to keep writing stuff, even if they might more usefully take more time to reflect. I mean, I hope you are aware that this is a pretty good description of the current situation. I agree. Like, it's like we're all little drones in a larger society that's forcing us to do things. Yeah, capitalism drones, as a colleague likes to say. And then the question is, how and when do things change? Now, there's a German physicist, a mid-century German physicist, a guy named Max Planck, who pointed out already in 1950, and I'll just read his quote. He said that a new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. So in other words, I mean, this is also a quote from him, or at least it's supposed to be a quote for him. I was not able to verify this particular quote, but he basically said that these scientific innovations or scientific revolutions rarely happen when one side convinces the other side, right? You're not supposed, to, I mean, maybe you would want to do that, but it rarely happens, right? It rarely happens that Saul, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the apostle, right? And this like moment of conversion of illumination, enlightenment, of understanding that you were wrong all along. What does happen in, in most of these cases, at least according to Max Planck, is that again, people just die out. And uh, the growing generation is simply learns a new paradigm from the beginning. This is summarized, and I've heard multiple scientists use this, that science progresses one funeral at a time. So only when someone dies, only then does science progress. And I know this idea is controversial, but I have to say that from my perspective, Again, still as an early career researcher, it doesn't seem so off. Well, Lee, I have to say, you certainly win a prize for talking about death in the first 15 or 20 minutes of a podcast of other academics. I mean, it is about infectious historians, right? I mean, we are talking about infectious diseases. Okay, fair enough. I'm not sure how I feel one way or the other on that rather depressing deep point. But I will say there's another possibility that I often think about, which is that I think people also get tired of arguing about seemingly intractable points and go off and do other things and ask other questions. I think that's something that actually does happen just as much. And maybe that takes a generational thing that you're pointing out. But maybe the key issue in what you just said is that some of these points are intractable. So if they are intractable and if we can't really solve some of these questions. I mean, that's already an insightful thing to say, I would, I would think at least. I always think of many of the questions people are asking, especially around disease in the pre-modern world are probably unresolvable to an extent. I mean, we can discuss which ones and why, but as you and I know, right, arguing about mortality of the Justinianic plague is kind of a worthless endeavor to an extent because we just won't ever know, right? I mean, we just don't know population numbers and demographics. It's just not doable. That's at least what I would say. But to return to my point, I guess what I would say is people ask different questions, which maybe then eventually gets them back at more interesting ways to look at the first question. So I have a colleague who is an early American historian, and he's pointed out to an extent that his field largely stopped arguing about the causes of the American Revolution. 
right? I mean, it was thought to be kind of resolved or maybe irresolvable. And instead, people turn to other questions, right? Specifically, what the, that field is called vast early America, which is to say, not looking toward the Atlantic world, but within continental United States, and importantly, incorporating a lot of really great work on indigenous history of early America. Now, I think that move has been super important, although I hope, you know, that move, which seems to be what that field does a lot of, eventually gets built back into some of these questions of the American Revolution. And it's interesting that you're so much aware of what's going on in early American history. So are you thinking to move your expertise there, maybe write your habilitation on early American history? I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I think my interest in other fields and knowledge of the historiography of them comes from two things, which is what I would say maybe resolves your curiosity question or how people should move, which is one, as I pointed out, reading some of these debates that play out in the pages of the American Historical Review or past and present, right? So they'll have these debates play out and you get to read them. And I don't have a view on these things, but I've read enough within those publications to understand that there is a debate there. And then the other thing, which I think is, is important, is having colleagues who are also in different fields doing interesting work, right? So this is because I have a colleague who works on American revolutionary history, and we've had long talks about how that field works, right? It's also the colleague Lee who does our middle uh, music segment, so you should be very pleased with that. Thanks. Thanks to that colleague. Yeah, but also in a sense, I think for me personally, you know, doing pandemic and plague work forever would kind of bore me to death. And so doing this work actually has got me more interested in the other early medieval and late antique work that I do and the other questions I have, right? So in a sense, and again, maybe this is because I'm specially, but I've always thought I was special. My parents told me that, is that I like to bounce between questions quite a bit. And I think it gets me re-excited each time about the other fields. And hopefully, you know, when I start doing other early medieval work, I'll want to come back to the pandemic work. So what I guess I'm saying is, you know, I think one thing and one healthy way to approach this is rather than, you know, going at the same problem over and over again until your elders die, it might be more useful to balance different projects and bounce around. I mean, I agree, right? On If you want to keep your sanity, so that's probably what you should do instead of just screaming your position over and over again and nobody really changing their mind. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. More broadly, though, I mean, to return to the Max Planck discussion of science progression, funerals, and so on, my sense, and again, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that, again, the major shifts uh, because of some discovery, major shifts in historical narrative, this idea of scientific revolutions, right? Think about some article in the New York Times or the Atlantic or whatever, in which they tell you, oh, this was discovered and this changes everything completely. From my sense, it doesn't really reflect research reality. And the substantial changes, again, from my perspective, they all seem to be gradual and slow. And actually, I can't, I can't think of any major short-term paradigm shift as a result of a single article. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always been the case, and any historian of science would say that's the case in terms of how science works, right? It's not an event, it's a process that unfolds. I just think, as someone like yourself, who's living through an argument as it's unfolding, which I think you and I are certainly in a debate at the moment, it's much harder to, you know, come around to the process of change than it is to hope that people will suddenly be converted by our great work. Yeah, but have you, just out of curiosity, have you encountered any case in which a paradigm, a major paradigm shift happened as a result of like, let's say a single article over the short term, right? Not in retrospect, like 30 years later, this was seen as the article that changed everything. But having an article published and then kind of that, that changing everything about a field. Have you encountered that before? Well, the problem is I don't know 
the people at the time when most of those articles were written, right? So I think this isn't a question for us in the sense that we're not old enough in an academic sense where we haven't had that play out across time, right? I mean, there's articles and books that I've been told and I've read or, you know, these are the important things and these changed how we did this. But I don't actually know because I didn't live through it you know, one, five, 10 year impact of it, right? I think a lot of what I'm told, does that work? Probably at the time, if you talk to people who are alive when it came out, they would tell you very, very different stories. Yeah, so you're saying that in retrospect, I mean, you can look back, let's say 30, 40 years back and see that really important, let's say books or articles or whatever, but it's much more difficult to figure that out in real time when they're being published. There are a number of things that are always cited as these were the apocryphal moments, but I don't know at the time whether or not that was the case. And, you know, my favorite example of this, Lee, is from our PhD institution, actually, which is Princeton. And there was a famous New York Times article in the late 80s called, you know, the Hot History Department. And it was about these great fights that were happening within a seminar that runs on Fridays. And they brought in all the people who wrote the article when I was at Princeton and all the people who were, you know, written about in the article and they were reflecting on this article, you know, 30 years later, I think it was. And all of them admitted kind of that this was really overblown. And in fact, that if I remember correctly, the guy who wrote the article didn't even go to one of these seminars. He just reported on what happened in the seminar. And that like kind of blew my mind at the time. Great journalism, especially as it's not that far away. From New York, that is. Yeah, I mean, one important exception here would be the popular synthesizing books, let's say, that really aim more at people outside academia or outside a specific field or discipline. And these books tend to spread ideas, I would say, much more effectively than the research books that most academics write. And I'm thinking here about high-profile books, Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, or the same author, Jared Diamond's Collapse book, or maybe Yuval Harari's Sapiens. And these books really create a lot of buzz. Many people discuss them both outside of academia, but also inside academia. But again, my sense as a researcher is that among the research community, these books don't necessarily advance research. And if anything, some scholars prefer to argue against them rather than kind of like accept their position. Well, I'll just say I'm not sure what Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel did in terms of changing any meta paradigm level thinking. I mean, the takeaway message of the book is in the title, and none of those points are new, original, groundbreaking. I mean, maybe he cemented a change that people have been discussing for decades at best. No, that's my sense of what he did. But he popularized it, right? I mean, he made these things accessible to a much, much broader audience. And I mean, I remember reading this as a teenager and like being blown away by, oh, actually university is interesting. Academia can be interesting and good. I might go study these things one day. Yeah, again, I'm happy it made you think that is what I would say is my takeaway. Like. But maybe to shift the focus a little bit and return to kind of the opening points, and I think we've maybe trailed off into your deep thoughts on death a little too much, is that at least as I see it, for the most part, I haven't seen disease histories expand beyond subfields at the moment, as much as maybe I hoped at the beginning of this podcast. Now, I've written a couple of things that are probably more meta. And actually, some of the people we've had on this podcast, I think, are actually doing similar things. Christos Linteros is someone who comes to mind in terms of much of his thinking. And there are broader takes on the field, which I think for us as pre-modern historians means ultimately people thinking not just about the ancient and medieval world, but also how the modern world has influenced the past. And perhaps one thing I'm less pessimistic than you about, Lee, is that I think that the move where you start out, like we have, examining the deeper past and then look at how more recent history has influenced that deeper past is something actually a number of medieval historians, just actually early medieval historians, 
do actually quite a bit. And I can think of four or five people off the top of my head who do that work. But uh, don't you think that that kind of move is kind of like the, a natural step to do, at least at this point, right? Because you do want to communicate, right? Like be enter discussion, influence discourse with people who are not pre-modernists. I mean, us pre-modernists are a minority of people in history departments for sure. So in order to be able to speak to people outside our smaller subfield, so just moving on and thinking about how the modern world has influenced the past seems like a natural step. It's very strongly connected, to my mind at least, to our work on the past. Yeah, but I also don't think it's a move that a lot of people necessarily make, both because there's no incentive to do it, and also just because most people keep working on, as you pointed out at the beginning, their subfield, right? So, I mean, you know, we've written about modern influences on how we think about, say, the sixth century, but I don't know how many people really want to necessarily make that move, even if some people do, right? But I don't know what the incentives are for you to necessarily do it. But I do hope that that's where histories of disease, which are quite recent and still in the process of coming together during COVID, pick up these ideas, right? So I hope that more people start to think about histories of disease of the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, which is why we keep having people on who talk about these things, even though you make fun of me, like. But someone like Mateus, who we had on talk about, say, outbreaks of plague in Brazil and really could track very neatly how, say, the example of plague being like the Black Death and then modern people conquering it, how that shift happened and how much, you know, I think pre-modern historians need to understand that perspective more. So what you're saying, Merle, is that we and this podcast are actually at the bleeding edge, again, to use your favorite phrase, the bleeding edge of discourse at the moment? I mean, I always like to think we're at the bleeding edge, although I think that phrase is really bad and not particularly useful. Now, I will say that I think probably, obviously, pre-modern historians will be the ones forced to do this more likely than modern historians. Yeah, I mean, that seems right, even if it's only based on the numbers. And I also would say that something to keep in mind is it means a lot more reading and thinking right, moving forward. So I think of it this way, that pre-modern historians, I think yourself includedly, and I would maybe include myself here, have gotten really into using the idea of resilience to understand society. But that actually, in fact, many modern historians, that resilience is a term they actually no longer like to use, right? It's something that they find deeply conservative and tends to focus on the state and state institutional structures as surviving rather than focusing on individuals. But that I think us in the pre-modern world are much more happy to use the term because we work on much longer timescales and we have fewer individual people. We only have state responses. And so the state or a city surviving is a positive outcome, even if thousands of people die in between. And that's kind of a problem for me in terms of how I think about resilience now. I mean, in a way, if you think about this from a modern perspective, right? So having a state or a society or a community being resilient means that, yes, it would remain, it would persist. Now, if you think that there are major issues with our current present day societies, states, communities, and, and so on, so maybe resilience is not that attractive, right? It just would mean that you would continue or bounce back to an earlier state of that state, community, society, or, or whatever. But from my perspective, resilience seems like a much more neutral term. I, mean, I think resilience is, is really a boundary object. That is to say, a term that could mean very different things to different people. So both of us can use the same word and many other people could use the same word as well. And actually each and every one of us would probably define resilience in a slightly or maybe very different way. But these boundary objects are still required to hold any interdisciplinary conversations. So there's like a trade-off there. 
from my perspective, resilience is a widely used term, but in the literature I read about the 20th or 21st century, it's really often used at the level of a community or a socio-environmental system, which is again, is a local thing rather than a statewide question. And resilience was kind of imported back into the past, into the pre-modern past, where it was attractive an attractive concept to use to think about the states or broader societies that we pre-modernists are still preoccupied with. And in my personal impression, this tends to happen when you simply don't have enough data to do a more nuanced analysis of, let's say, a single community within a city. I mean, for late antiquity, we have very little evidence. So how can we do that? We can't do that. And then we just use the resilience concept, which is still attractive to the level of society that makes the most sense, which is the state. But the one thing I would say is actually what you just pointed out is how conservative it is. Even if it serves as a boundary object, et cetera, et cetera, we can put that aside, that the fact that it comes out of literature about socio-environmental systems, which I'll just say often ignore human beings outside of economics in their analysis in many of these fields is what I've come to realize means that it is in fact a buzzword that is extremely conservative to my mind, right? It's basically a way to push an idea that things will return to normal when probably that normal state was harming people and will continue to harm people afterwards. Yeah, and I guess this actually ties into a broader discussion again, which is what is academia? I mean, I personally think that academia, again, partially because of the structures in place is or tends to be conservative, at least our side of academia. But again, I'm not sure this is a, a tractable debate that we're having. I mean, to use your term from earlier on, and maybe to connect it to my point early on, I guess we just have to wait until one of us dies and then the other person, I guess, wins the debate or something. I'm not sure. Great. So now one of us is dying. That's great. Like maybe... I think it's not that we resolve the debate, but you know, someone we train eventually resolves the debate. Yeah, we have to start training lots of graduate students and get them jobs, which is going to be difficult. I think that's a fair point, but probably a different podcast. Right. And maybe to transition from here to a different point, or it's actually a good transition to a different point which is the point about outreach and influencing policy, which has been pretty big over the past and the second year of this podcast, so to speak. And both outreach and influencing policy are seen as something positive. And in a sense, they really are. But they also have drawbacks, which we've mentioned in the past, and I think we should remind listeners of. First, outreach, right? So you, we academics, actually, most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us, receive very little credit for doing outreach, for reaching out to broader audiences who are not our students in our institutions. And it also seems to me, at least from my personal perspective, that some historians tend to be strongly against doing such outreach. So that's on the outreach side. And then there's the influencing policy, which again, is an exciting buzzword, but isn't influencing policy ultimately trying to influence politics based on your own politics? I mean, is there really some objective science or objective history that would allow you to kind of speak the truth to all these policy planners? I mean, I don't think so. I guess the question then is that you've set up something of a binary here, which I don't think you intend, but I think that's ultimately maybe where you get to, which is you either do something broader, which you suggest has problems, or you do nothing at all, right? If you're upset about all of these broad issues in academia, then why struggle against them at all? And in that sense, it reminds me of what one colleague has said to me when I get frustrated from time to time, which is actually the answer that say Dan Curtis a few weeks ago said when we asked him how he picks projects, which is just do stuff that interests him and you see is fun, and hopefully it has some broader implications. Right, and this I actually agree with. I mean, for all of its problems and, and issues, academia does give a fortunate few the really awesome opportunity to read and research and 
write more or less about whatever they're interested in. So then that brings me to an obvious question. Why do you get upset about the lack of change in academia if you don't have an outcome in mind and it's just fun to do research? I mean, I think it's important to reflect upon our own circumstances, right? The circumstances, the structures that, that govern us in our profession, in academia, and think about how they influence us. Now, I'm aware that not everything can be fixed, definitely not by me, but much more can and should be aired, should be made known to broader audiences, more people. And I mean, I have to say, I'm quite open with my students about such issues. And, and I hope that when they finish my classes that have this more meta type component, they can either break or at least nuance the ivory tower model of academia that many of them still seem to come to class with. Well, maybe we should have this episode in 10 years and you can let me know if this has been successful or not, Lee. But I guess this brings me to another meta discussion or meta question. What do we want to do with this podcast moving forward now that we've aired kind of how we think this has gone, questions we still have, intractable problems, or that Lee sees as intractable until, you know, older generations leave. But I guess what has been the underlying question of this episode, as we think through and out loud, some of the things you and I, I think have talked about on and off is where we want to go from here and what maybe some of you want to get out of it. So the first thing I'll say is we always welcome feedback that we've gotten so far and we've put on people, we've changed ideas. Uh, from our audience. So please do write to us if you have thoughts, ideas, or suggestions on episodes or other things we can or should do moving forward. But second, and I think in the near future, maybe a month or so, we're going to begin to, I think, slow the pace of episodes and maybe even take a short break at some point. We will certainly let you know in the episodes before we do that when that's going to happen. But I do think we probably need a new season, I guess. I guess we could say, although seasons don't really work necessarily here, but a new break, a new series of ideas to think through how we want to use this podcast as more than just reactive to COVID, which is, I think, what this reflective episode has moved us toward. Yeah, I think this goes back to the anniversary episode that we had. And when we tried to think about or reflect upon why we actually started this podcast in the first place, right? So it was a reaction to COVID. It was trying to make sense of what was going on during COVID as COVID was happening. And I think that as time moved on, and especially now, especially over the past, let's say, month or so, it is becoming increasingly clear that COVID is not going to go away as we may have expected or hoped or anticipated some time ago. So I think we would need a new rationale or approach to how we're doing these episodes on this podcast. And this really reminds me of, of Scott Knowles, who we had on a few months ago, who in a sense pivoted much more substantially than we did much of his career towards COVID, toward just reflecting on COVID more or less day after day throughout COVID. And he, back then, when we were very optimistic, he was also optimistic, I guess, back then. But he said that, I mean, he would continue to work on the aftermath of COVID, even after it ends. Unfortunately, it hasn't really ended. And I guess the example of Scott actually ties into the earlier part of this discussion, because Scott is a historian who does attempt to reach out and expand his audience. So, but I would say that he's probably more the exception than the rule. Yeah, I think that the initial idea that we sketched out and have discussed in this episode, but we hope this podcast would be both for us personally and for the field, I think we're getting to a point where we can end that. Even as you nicely pointed out, I think COVID certainly is nowhere close to ending and certainly won't end for decades in many places. And I think personally, I would just say that this podcast has shaped my work a ton including an article that I just had published earlier this week, which was called Uses of History During the First Nine Months of COVID. And a lot of the ideas there came from the first nine months of conversations with people on this podcast. So first of all, congrats on the article. I'm, 
I'm glad to hear that. And I'm obviously glad to hear that the podcast has been useful for you. I mean, it definitely has been useful for me. Just getting all these guests to talk to us about their great ideas and their very interesting, different approaches than our approaches. Kind of like throwing ideas at them. Some of them work, some of them don't work. But I think that in these times when it has been increasingly difficult to maintain some sort of community or discussion or really relationships, I think these kind of conversations have really contributed at least to my intellectual life, thinking, whatever. Yeah, I think that's a nice way to put it. And I also hope for many of you that this podcast has opened up new questions, answered old questions, and made many of you rethink ideas, ask new questions. And I guess that's a nice way to put it in the sense of, you know, we have a few more episodes planned, but in a month or so, I think, Lee, as I said, we'll slow the episodes. But also, I think it would be good if we perhaps take a more structured approach, right? What do we want to get out of particular episodes? Maybe this means more episode arcs, Lee, on particular topics. I know how much you like episode arcs. Yeah, your favorites. Yeah, I mean, I think they're useful, and I think that they would allow us to examine new questions and to ask new questions of particular things rather than, I think to an extent, we've tried to have as many people on from as many perspectives as we can, which I think has been really great. But as I think this episode has reflected, it's reaching, I think, its end point without larger goals in mind. And maybe to end on a more hopeful note, maybe that does show us something about what we've been talking about this whole episode is the field didn't instantly change or incorporate new ideas that were floating around. But I think more people taught courses on medicine, public health, and disease during COVID. I you know, don't have any quantifiable way of knowing that, but it's a gut feeling that I think is probably right. I mean, you know that I taught a class on disease during COVID, but I actually registered that class before COVID. So, I mean, based on your quantitative analysis, I mean, you would think that I was somehow influenced by COVID, but again, I actually submitted that class, I think several months before COVID even started. That's fair. But I also know we had Janet Kay on this podcast who taught an entirely new course that was very popular. So I, I think probably we could say that the answer was yes, even if I don't have numbers and I am no way, shape or form, am I going to go out and collect numbers? No, I think that's a fair point. So yes, there probably have been more classes on disease and public health and medicine and so on, but still far less than I expected. And if you think about the conferences, the bigger conferences that we both attended, it's not as if everyone there spoke about disease and health and so on. I mean, yes, maybe it became a bit more prevalent uh, than average, but it's still not a massive change. Yeah, but I don't know if the research is necessarily going to change, but maybe aside from students learning about your daughter, Lee, for example, or about my kids, maybe this inspired people who are listening and teachers to work and to teach more and more classes moving forward. So to use your example earlier on that you may or may not have taken from Max Planck, although you could neither confirm nor deny this, is that probably because we're young in the academic sense here, I'm not quite sure I consider myself young anymore, but that's for a different conversation. But maybe we shouldn't have expected that there would be some Saul Paul conversion moment, even though for whatever reason we expected there to be. And I'm not sure everyone has to die, but I do think the shift will be gradual, I hope at least, and will happen in the end. And maybe in 20, 30 years, someone will assign maybe something we wrote and say this was the moment in which the paradigm changed. When I have to say, Merle, I like your optimism, especially when you combine it with like the midlife crisis of you not being gang anymore. So definitely fun things. So that segment, as I mentioned, was from an early Americanist colleague of mine, a very good friend, Andrew Edwards who lives in Oxford, England, and I have not seen since COVID. 
who actually has been doing much more than just his own very limited research, right? I mean, he has like branched out into sound editing and putting together very good music tracks. Yeah, well, actually, and also the article I mentioned that just came out, he gave me really helpful feedback on and commentary. And I was actually supposed to see him in the summer of 2020, and I've yet to see him. But speaking of which, aside from your traveling around Israel in new locations, workcations, which sounds fairly miserable and dystopian, actually. But do you have any other fun summer plans, Lee? Most of August is going to be on workation. And then there are several conferences that I'm going to, going to attend. Still unclear if in person or not. I mean, some of these conferences want to do it in person. I personally think that is less likely every day. But I guess we'll see. So no, I mean, I'm still at the beginning of my summer. I still have about two months until I start teaching. So summer is long. What about you? Do you have any other summer plans? Yeah, so our summer plans is we have a few trips we'd like to make for maybe long weekends. We're thinking in the area of Annapolis to see places which we haven't gotten to because of COVID. But I guess the main news is I got a job a few months ago, as you know, Lee. I mean, you say that in a very relaxed manner, but this is actually very, very good news. So great news. Yeah, it's always going to be an apocryphal story looking back on those few years. And you've already made your postdoc years into an apocryphal story, if I recall now. I prefer the term myths, but yeah. Fair enough. So I did get a job at Oklahoma State in their history department, but it's affiliated with a pandemic center that they just sent up. So I will be able to do both history work and pandemic disease work at the same time. So again, congrats. And what you're actually saying is that you are being incentivized into moving away from, let's say, your comfort zone of just early medieval and push forward into the broader pandemic stuff. So that I think is actually a good thing. I mean, that Oklahoma there is opening. How common is it? I'm not sure, but you're probably going to be in a good place. Yeah. I mean, it's a great department and I'm really excited and looking forward to it. So that's going to take up much of the rest of my summer in terms of planning. Okay, so on that note of Merle establishing a new base in Oklahoma, we can wrap up this episode. So we'd like to thank our sponsor, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, for funding the podcast, and our usual team, our sound editor, Amitai Barlavi, and our webmaster, Barrett Rakanati. Until next time, stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, And let us know if you have any fun summer plans for the rest of August.